0: Uh, and they will bring you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we want that to be our gift to you. So please accept that as our gift. Write your name in it and uh, give yourself to reading it and studying it, and um, let it be hidden in your heart in that way. Okay, everybody, have a Bible that wishes one. It's over on the side. We're in Isaiah chapter nine, and so we invite folks to turn their Bibles to Isaiah chapter nine. We're going to be in the first seven verses of Isaiah. We're going to end our short study of this book with this sermon. Uh, In the new year, we're going to pick up with a couple of uh, topical series. We're going to start with uh, kind of the state of our union, where we're going to think about uh, our five M's, how far we've gotten, how far we've got to go, uh, and sort of push forward some vision with that. And then we're going to do a topical study of a kind of biblical theology of justice and righteousness. Thinking about what the Lord calls us to be and do as a people known by his name. Uh, And so uh, that's going to be the new year. And we're going to conclude this year with a look at Isaiah chapter 9. Let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Lord God, we do confess that you are wonderful. That you are mighty, indeed you are omnipotent, you have all power, we praise you, we adore you, And we thank you that you have taken all of your wonderfulness and all of your power and you have used it for our salvation. And We pray, O Lord, that as we look into your holy word this morning, that you would speak to us please don't let us leave this place without having heard from you. Please don't let us be so distracted this morning that we can't hear your voice. And please don't let us be so captured by other ideas that we somehow think them better than what you tell us in your word. Oh God, we perish if we don't hear from you. And so speak, O Lord, through your word, Lift up Christ high so that we might see Him in all the riches of His glory, and speak, Lord, directly into our hearts, so that we might be touched and changed by your spirit and your word. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray, in Jesus name. Amen. So what is Christmas all about? For me, as a little boy, it's about the lights and the tree, and the gifts. I can mark some of my favorite Christmases by the gifts that I got. That was the year that I got Rock'em Sock'em Robots. A year or two later, my sister gave me an electric football set. That sounds weird to some of y'all, but that was high technology back in the day. And there was one Christmas where I woke up and next to the tree, stacked in a pyramid, probably about as tall as I am now, was this collection of Fisher-Price uh, action figures. They were like policemen and firemen and, and water rescue folks, kind of all stacked there. And, and that's the Christmas I really did hear the angels sing. <laughs> so for a lot of us, Christmas was about the toys, the gifts, if we're kids. And somewhere along the way, some of us sort of grow out of the gifts and that aspect of how we celebrate Christmas, and you may begin to sound like my mother. My mother now says, you know, Christmas is for the children, it's something for the kids. Or maybe Christmas for you is a certain kind of feeling, the feeling you get from eggnog and fireplaces and office Christmas parties, a a Christmas cheer, they call it what's Christmas really about? Well, you may have heard the cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season. Good enough. But why? Why is Jesus the reason for the season? And which Jesus? Christmas may be the biggest holiday with the greatest number of people celebrating it Who don't know why they're celebrating it. So, this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, I want to ask two questions and answer two questions from the text. Number one, what is Christmas really about? What is Christmas really about? And number two, how does Christmas produce these things? How does Christmas produce? these things. And as we look into Isaiah chapter 9, where the Lord really announces Christmas hundreds of years before it occurs, may we indeed have a true and deep and lasting sense of what it's really about, of who it's really about. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. What's Christmas really about? Well, I think we're giving pictures for what Christmas is about in verses 1 to 5. In a word, Christmas is about change, about change. Christmas brings into the world all the changes that the world really needs. And here in verses 1 to 5, we get five transformations that are promised by God when his Messiah comes. Notice number one, the transformation, the change from gloom to glory. That's what we see in verse 1. Remember at the end of chapter 8, God has promised judgment against the people. He's going to send Assyria into the land, and Assyria is going to conquer and kill and carry people off into exile and captivity. It's a gloomy picture. But here, look at verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And notice the division in time. In the former time... He brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What's Isaiah seeing here? Well, he says God has brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. That's his way of talking about God's judgment. The word contempt there means scorn or loathing. It's a, it's a kind of hatred. And, and when applied to God, it's God's holy hatred, his repulsion, his, his disgust with sin, and in his holiness, the judgment that he brings against sin. Their sin has put them in contempt of God's court. And as a consequence, God judged them that's why verse 1 begins with this notion of anguish and gloom. And the world would be left in gloom if it were not for Christmas. God produces a change. See, notice there, in the latter times, in the the future, God replaces the gloom of the first half of verse 1 with the glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In other words, the change that God has in mind includes not only the northern tribes of Israel, Zebulon and Naphtali, which had already been conquered, but it goes beyond the borders of Israel, across the Jordan, into Galilee of the Gentiles, This change that God brings in the world goes not just to Israel, but to all nations, to all peoples. He brings his glory, his fame, his weight, his brightness to replace the gloom for all people. That includes me and you, beloved. Beloved. God designed Christmas to be an event that changes the gloom and the agony of his contempt and his judgment into the glory of his forgiveness and of his salvation. That's what Christmas is about, but it's about another transformation too. Notice in verse 2, it's a transformation, a change from darkness to light. Verse 2 refers to the people who walked in darkness. Who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. So everything about their life, their, their walk was darkness, was sin. Everything about their culture, their land was, was very dark. And here darkness symbolizes sinfulness and this deep darkness symbolizes the, the blindness and the death that comes from sin. As some of you grew up in cities so you don't really know what darkness is. In cities, there's always a light on somewhere, and you can see by that light. But some of us grew up in the country, well beyond light, (laughs) where darkness is darkness indeed. There are some places where it's so dark, you you can't see your hand in front of your face, like where Christy grew up, right? (laughs) Way out in the country. And this is the image here, that that the darkness of sin, the darkness of that land, it, 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 it incapacitates, it immobilizes. You can't walk with any certainty in it. You don't know where you're going. You're lost. And ultimately it pictures death. But now God solves this problem of sin and death with Christmas. The very people who walked in darkness notice has seen a great light. They didn't turn the light on. Notice the second part. On them light has shone. This, this light symbolizes, symbolizes the way God breaks into the darkness with, with new hope, with new vision, with a new life of righteousness rather than sin. And it's coming from God to those in darkness. It's not the other way around. So when the New Testament wants to talk about what it was like for Jesus to come into the world... We shouldn't be surprised that almost every gospel quotes this verse. Almost every gospel comes back to this prophecy with Isaiah. You can turn there with me if you like, or you can just write the text down. But in Luke chapter 2, which George was reading so wonderfully for us, a, a few verses later, chapter 2, verses 25 to 32, we're introduced to this man named Simeon, an old man who, who the Bible says had been promised that he would see the Savior before he died. He would see the consolation, the comfort, the the hope of Israel, the one who is prophesied here in Isaiah 9. It's 700 years later, and Simeon is waiting to see this, and he gets news that Jesus is in the temple, and so he comes in the Spirit into the temple, and this is what he says when he takes Jesus in his arms and blesses the child. He says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, notice, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is this light. And so we're not surprised in John chapter one, when John begins to tell us about uh, Jesus and his birth and his incarnation in verses four and nine, he reaches for this symbol of light as well. So this is what we read in John one, beginning in verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then John says this in verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light. And Christmas is about God sending this light into the world to give salvation to all who would believe in him. It's not about the lights on the Christmas tree or the lights on the house. At the very best, those are weak and and secular symbols for a much more powerful light that gives life to men. That's what Christmas was about. Isaiah saw it 700 years before Jesus' birth. 2,000 years ago, the apostles laid eyes on that very light in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years later, he's given us that light in the message of the gospel. It's about light bringing life. Now, everyone who is in darkness must repent of sin and life in that darkness and believe in this light. In order to come into the kingdom of God, that's how the Lord changes us, removes us from the darkness, and brings us into light. But there's another change. Notice number three in verse verse three, there's a change from defeat to joy. From defeat to joy. Look at verse three You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Uh, That first reference there, you have multiplied the nation. Keep in mind that that he's just prophesied that they were going to be defeated by Assyria. They were going to be led away into exile. Their numbers were going to be reduced through death and slavery. Isaiah here is looking to a day when that defeat is reversed. With a number, notice there, is increased. The thought of a growing number of God's people leads to celebration and delight. There'll be an increasing joy. Isaiah uses two illustrations. He says it's like the, the joy at the harvest. Again, in agricultural societies, harvest time was time for celebration. All the work was done. The crops had been watered and tended and now they had grown up and been collected in the harvest. And and now all was left to do was to give thanks to God and to celebrate his bounty, his goodness in the harvest. It will be like that joy or it'll be like the joy of soldiers who have gone to war. And now the war is won and they are dividing the spoil. Those soldiers are happy soldiers, first of all, because they didn't get killed. They're going to be able to go home and to see wife and children and hopefully live a a long life of days. And so there's that joy. But then that joy is doubled by the fact that because they are the winners, they are the victors, they get to divide the spoil. They get to go home richer than than when they went to war. Christmas brings this kind of change, beloved. Takes us from the defeat at the hands of our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, and it brings to us the joy of a hard-earned victory that's won by God. This is why the Bible, whenever it talks about God's kingdom, it talks about it in terms of joy. It talks about it in terms of delight. And so Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13, verse 44, that the kingdom of heaven is, is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then, now notice, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and comes and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven produces the kind of joy where you'll give everything else up in order to have that kingdom. Or or Paul could write in Romans chapter 14 verse 17 that for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It isn't a matter of strict dietary rules and religious observances. No, but the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The best thing a person can do for their own joy is believe in Jesus and accept the change that he brings. It's our sin that makes us miserable. It's the Savior that makes us happy. That's what Christmas is about. Not the temporary feeling of Christmas cheer that's over almost as soon as you unwrap the presents. Certainly it's over by time you take the lights down. Christmas brings an everlasting, ever-increasing joy that is as permanent and stable as God himself. If you would have joy, you must have Jesus. You must understand Christmas in this way. And it brings a fourth change. Notice there that Christmas or this promise of a Messiah takes us from oppression to liberty. From oppression to liberty. Notice verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. A yoke, a staff, a rod, are all symbols of being controlled and worked and beaten and oppressed by someone else. A yoke is that heavy harness that an ox wears, that 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 sort of guides the art ox as it as it does its work, and a. A staff would have been laid across the shoulders. You've seen this, a long pole laid across the shoulders with uh, sort of weights on, on both ends, could be buckets of water, could be something else that are made to carry and shoulder that burden. And the rod here—it's like a whip used to beat and to strike. It's a picture here of Israel in their captivity becoming beasts of burden. And this beautiful promise, God will take as in one motion the yoke, the staff, the rod of our oppressor and break it. He will free His people from their captors. He will liberate them from their oppression. And we know that it will be God who does this because of that last phrase there. It will be as on the day of Midian. Now, you, you, you know, haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible, that's, well, what is that about? You'd have to look back to Judges chapter 7. In the book of Judges chapter 7, there's a man named Gideon. And Gideon has been chosen to be a judge in Israel and to lead Israel into their freedom. And their main enemy at that time is a people called Midian. And so Gideon goes out with his army of like 32,000 men to fight against Midian. And God is sort of looking at them, and God says, now, you know what, if they go out and win the war with all these soldiers, they're going to think they did it. So I got a, I got a, I got a lesson to arm it. And so he tells Gideon, listen, ask the soldiers, ask them how many of them scared. And everybody who's scared, send them home. And so Gideon said, you know, y'all scared? 22,000. He said, you know what, I'm a little scared, dog. I'm, I'm I'm going go on back home. So they go home. So he's left with 10,000. And God says, you know what? That's too many still. Tell you what, I'm going to give them a test. Send them down to the water and have them drink water. And I'm going to divide them based upon how they drink water. So some of them kneeled and drank water and others sort of got down and sort of lapped the water like a dog, the Bible says. And God says, you know what? Give me the ones that lapped up the water like a dog. There were 300 of them. And so he sent the other 9,700 home. And God says, okay, now if you win, they'll know it's me. Amen. And he sends them up. He says, this is what you do. Take, take a lantern or, or a glass jar in one hand and a torch and, and take, um, what was the other thing he told them to take? I forgot. A horn. That's right. And take a horn with you. And so they, they go out. He divides them into three companies. He surrounds the camp of Midian. he says, now when I tell you, blow the horn. And then after you blow the horn, smash the glass and light the torch. At. So they do that. They blow the horn, they blow the trumpets, then they smash the glass, and then they light the torches, and, the, and all the soldiers in the camp of Midian look up, and they, they hear this trumpet sound all around them. They hear the sound of smashing glass, and they see the fire from the torches, and the Bible says they panic, and they either ran off or they killed each other. And so Israel, 300 men, walked into the camp, divided all the spoil, and had this great victory over this army. Because of God. And what this text is saying is that the liberation that comes from God will be like in the day of Midian. It won't be something we have won. It won't be something we have done. It will be done in such a way that everyone would have to say, glory to God in the highest. He is the great liberator. He's the great savior. He's the great freedom fighter. God's going to win the victory all by himself. Now this oppression in this verse has at least two meanings. There's a literal or natural meaning and there's a spiritual meaning. Literally, God has a remnant in Israel. He has a people that he is not going to lose, that he will bring back into the land from Assyrian captivity. And he will do that over and over again in Israel's history. Bring them back, bring them back. And he will do that ultimately for his church, which suffers persecution in many places around the world. Those who are not his people have not this promise that God will liberate them in this life. Though we should follow God in working for genuine freedom for all the promises of God here are made to his people, his covenant people. So those who are his people have every confidence in looking for God's liberation, both in this life and in the life to come. Which brings us to the spiritual meaning here. God's liberation also includes freedom from sin and death. And that too is accomplished by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. That was our Midian, when God Himself took our flesh and defeated our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, without any help from us. And we will experience complete liberation when Christ returns with his everlasting kingdom. He's going to take us from slavery and oppression to freedom and liberty. But now number five, he's going to take us from war to peace. Verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Notice the word every. Isaiah sees a day when every boot and every bloodied garment from war will be used basically as kindling be used as fuel for fire. The clothing of warfare will have no other use in that day, and so it will be used for burning. You see a similar picture in Ezekiel 39 verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel is prophesying against Gog and Magog, which have come against Israel. And these are, this is what those two verses says, those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoil them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. So verse 5 has given us a picture of this kind of peace where weapons will no longer be needed. Of course, the world has been filled with war since Isaiah's day. So this is a prophecy of the final kingdom of the Messiah. God gives this prophecy because he wants Israel to know peace will come, even if they don't see it right now. If The next thing they see is an Assyrian soldier conquering their city. They're not to think that's the end. There's something more beyond that that God has for them. This is what Christmas is about. Peace, freedom, joy, light, and glory. It changes everything from agony to blessing. How do we apply this in our day? I think to get the application right, we have to remember to whom it was first written. What was Israel and Judah to do with these promises of change? Once again, remember, before these changes would come, God had already promised judgment and that they would be conquered. The promised glory and light and freedom and joy and peace were off into the future. So how would Israel apply this? They'd have to learn to wait on the Lord. There was nothing for them to do. You look at verses 1 to 5, there are no commands here. These promises are not dependent upon some other instructions. There's no how to survive exile. God did not give them a 10-point plan for leading a revolution. In this context, they simply had to have that kind of faith that could wait on the Lord. Beloved, the things we most want from God cannot be achieved by our efforts. If we can achieve them in our efforts, then, beloved, our visions are too small and uninspired. The things we most want come as in the days of Midian. God's people had to wait for the change to come and wait on God to do it. Beloved, in a fallen world, in a broken world full of misery, sometimes the most difficult and most important thing the people of God must do is wait. And if you ever had to wait, you know that waiting is not the same thing as doing nothing. It takes a great deal of energy to wait. It takes a great deal of self-control to wait. It takes a great deal of faith to wait. And there may be a great deal of suffering while you wait. So, when God calls us to wait on Him, He's not necessarily calling us to the easy path, He's calling us to the best path. Remember the promises of the the scriptures Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. David writes there, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In that psalm, he's being opposed by all kinds of enemies. So he's not looking at the goodness of the Lord right at that instance. But he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living before I die. And in verse 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. A little bit later, Psalm 62, verses 5 to 7, a psalm writer writes these words, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Or the writer of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. And some of you, beloved, are waiting on the Lord. You're wondering if there's anything else that you can do. You're wondering if God has forgotten you. You're wondering if you should keep on waiting or take matters in your own hands. Beloved, keep waiting. Keep waiting in faith. You will reap if you do not faint. Remember the promise and hope of Psalm 25, verses 1 to 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Then in verse 3, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall all be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The wicked can't wait. And so they're put to shame the righteous hope in God, and are never put to shame. Your trust in God, beloved, is never misplaced. Your waiting on the Lord will not ultimately fail. This is what Christmas is about. The promise of a Savior in whom we are to trust and in whom we will never be disappointed because He brings glory and light and joy and freedom and peace. Those are the deep things of the human heart. Those are the things that only God can give. Wait on the Lord. Trust in Him. He won't fail you. Which brings us to our second question for this morning. If if if, if Christmas brings change, how does it make these changes possible? How, how, how does this occur? By what force? By what power? Well, in one word, one name, Jesus. Jesus brings these changes. And there's a lot of confusion about about Jesus in the minds of some people. Different religions have different takes on Jesus. We can go down the block, a couple of blocks, and we'll find a street philosopher that has their own view of Jesus. But the best place to understand Jesus is in the book written about Jesus in the Bible. And in verses 6 to 7, We get this glorious biography of Jesus. And we're told two things there about Jesus. Number one, we're told that he is the son who is God. Look at the first part and the last part of verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And notice, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 6 begins as if we could be talking about any child or any son, doesn't it? But Isaiah says the child is not simply a, a regular child. This child is not even simply a, a symbol that points to God. The child is actually God. That's what's meant by the list of names at the end of verse 6. The son given to us will be the wonderful counselor. Now you may have a translation that divides that into two names. Wonderful, he shall be called wonderful. And he shall be called Counselor. It's a good debate as to how to translate that, but the ESV takes it together. The word wonderful, here's the same word that's often used in the Old Testament for miracles, that that God did wonders in the world. Counselor brings to mind the, the wisdom of God. God made him to be wisdom for us. I love the way one writer puts it. He says, his every instruction is wonderful. His opinions are extraordinary. His recommendations are impressive. His advice is phenomenal. He is the only one worth listening to. This is Jesus, our wonderful, miraculous, extraordinary counselor who speaks to us and guides us, who teaches us and counsels us that we might walk in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's not only a wonderful counselor, but the son given to us is also the mighty God. That makes it plain, doesn't it? The son is that unique child that Isaiah 7, 14 said would be born of a virgin who would be named Emmanuel, God with us. He's mighty and strong. There's no weakness in him at all. Even when Jesus is a babe in the manger, He is still upholding the universe by the word of his power. Calvin put it well. If we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But... If he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may, not rely, we may rely on him with safety. This is Jesus, the mighty God, whom we can trust safely because he has strength to fulfill all that he promises. And he's not only the mighty God. Notice the son given to us is the everlasting father. This does not mean he's the same as the father. The father and son are different persons in the Trinity. You could translate this that he is the father of the ages. He is without time and and in his attitude toward his people, he is always fatherly. Psalm 103 puts it this way, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And it's interesting when you go to the Gospels. The thing that we're told over and over about Jesus' internal state is that he looked at people and he had compassion. He was a savior with the compassion of a father, the tenderness of a dad with his children. And the Son given to us is the Prince of Peace. At his birth in Luke two fourteen, the angels announced on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Matthew Henry writes, as the prince of peace, he reconciles us to God. He is the giver of peace in the heart and conscience. And when his kingdom is fully established, men shall learn war no more. A quote from Calvin again, he puts it very simply, life without this king is restless and miserable he goes on to say, now how should we apply this to ourselves? Bear with me in this quote. Now to apply this to our own instruction, whenever any distrust arises and all means of escape are taken away from us, whenever in short it appears to us that everything is in a ruinous condition, Let us recall to our remembrance that Christ is wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of helping us. And because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we need counsel, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by that same comfort, let us learn to comfort all temporal distresses. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace and that it is easy for him to quickly calm all our uneasy feelings. Thus, with these titles, confirm us more and more in the faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and against hell itself. Christmas is possible because Jesus is God he is a wonder his counsel never fails he is the almighty God to us Jesus has a father's heart and that never changes about him he brings a royal peace to all who believe in him he's so much more than just another baby he is God coming to the world and don't miss it beloved he is given to us that is the most important phrase in that verse. Jesus is given to us. Amen. And he is ours if we will accept him. In all of his wisdom, and all of his power, and all of his fatherly love, this same Jesus comes into the heart of those who trust in him. This is the Son the world was waiting for. And he is coming to the world to give himself to us. But there's something else we should see about this Jesus. He's not only the son who is God, he is the son who rules. None of what is promised could be guaranteed if Christ were not ruler of all. And in several ways, this text shows us how it is that Christ is ruler of all. Notice in the middle of verse 6, it is because the government shall be on his shoulders. That means all rule rests on his back. Jesus supports the government. The government does not support Jesus. Some leaders think that they are above the law. English monarchs used to believe in the little phrase, Rex Lex, the king is law. And so those kings who believed that became tyrants and oppressed their subjects, much like we see there with the rod and the yoke in verse 4. Some folks came along a little bit later and said, no, 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 it's not Rex Lex, it's Lex Rex. The law is king, and the king must be submitted to the law. And sometimes in those governments, the strong still ruled the weak. In both cases, as we said, the burdens fell on the backs of the people. But Jesus is deeper than all of that because the whole eternal government has his shoulders for its foundation. And because his shoulders are its foundations, that government can never be shaken. And Jesus' government is not placed on anyone else's back but his own. And so the divine government is not a heavy yoke. It's not a rod. It's not a staff that whips and beats and turns us into beasts of burdens. This is why John could say that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome but light because they all are resting on his back. Those broad omnipotent shoulders that thinks this light and no affliction at all. And notice because the government rests on his shoulders, verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You see, there are a picture of, of Jesus' government spreading, it's it's increasing, it's working its way around the world, it is gathering under itself all of the nations. His his rule is being extended through the proclamation of his gospel. And wherever his rule goes, so goes his peace. And so of the increase of peace, it, there will be no end. He'll rule forever. And that means there will be peace forever. This can't be said about any human king, but only of that divine king whom God promised to the world. And notice how he sits. He sits on David's throne. And that throne, notice what's said in verse 7. That throne is established. He's going to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, Isaiah's day, and forevermore. So that all the promises of God to give to Israel and to the world a king who would rule forever on David's throne is fulfilled in this son of David, Jesus Christ the righteous. It would not be Solomon who would fulfill this. It would not be Solomon's sons who would fulfill this. It would not be Ahaz, whom we have heard so much about, or or Jotham, or any of the other kings of Israel who were written in the books of Chronicles and in the history of Israel. No, all of those were either bad or light pictures of this king who was to come. This king who would establish David's throne and, and make it unshakable. And this king who would rule on David's throne and uphold that throne, as the text says here, in justice and in righteousness. I want to quote Calvin one more time because he's putting it so well on these verses. When he thinks about the fact that Jesus' throne is established in justice and righteousness, he says this, justice is the best guardian of kingdoms and governments. Jesus knows that all too well. You have a kingdom that's not established in justice, is not established in righteousness. The foundations and the floorboards are rotten. It will teeter and totter and at some point fall. And every human government will. This is why God's people look up beyond citizenship and nationality and votings and polls and look to another king and another kingdom whose builder and architect is God. And they are not shaken. Though the world be shaken, this throne is established in justice and righteousness. And it's texts like this that leave me surprised and troubled that any Christian would be afraid of conversations about justice and righteousness, biblically defined, when our king and his throne are built on it. Now, I, I know men can twist these words. And give them meanings that are completely foreign to the Bible. I'm not talking about that. And even if they do it, it shouldn't cause any fear in our hearts, those of us who have the book. Justice, very simply, is doing what's right in God's sight, according to his word. You want a simple definition? And that's what Jesus is going to do. That's what his throne is going to be built on in every circumstance, in every situation, doing what is right in God's sight, according to his word. And we, as his people, are meant to join him in that, in the pursuit and the promotion and the defense and the articulation of a biblical and God-centered definition of justice. And to promote that in the church, if nowhere else, and in the world, Because we're called to love this world in which God's government is increasing through the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples. Notice here. From this time forth and evermore, justice and righteousness will come from his throne. And notice verse 7. This government, again, it doesn't get established by the vote. It won't depend upon God's church even. It won't depend on any agency but God himself. The last line of verse 7 is for me perhaps the most assuring line of this text. Notice what the Bible says. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal is passion or burning for something. It's, it's fervor. It's like fire. God is on fire for this vision of his kingdom. For this vision of his son sitting enthroned, ruling in justice and righteousness, spreading his rule throughout the world, and gathering to himself a people from every nation and tribe and language, a people that looks like this room, only even more diverse. God looks at that vision. He gives that vision. He articulates that vision through the prophet of Isaiah. And he says, now listen, this is not going to depend on Assyria changing its mind. It's not going to depend on Israel becoming a strong nation in the world. It's not even going to depend on the church sort of taking over the world. It's my zeal that's going to perform this. It's my fervor, my burning, my passion, my love for the salvation of the nations, and my love for the promotion of my son." that will perform this. And beloved, where God has zeal to do something, it will be done. Where God has burned to make something happen, other things will catch on fire. Where God grows fervent and energetic and exercises his power to bring to pass his plan, believe it, beloved, every detail of the plan will be established because it depends upon the power of the Lord. This is meant to be hope to Israel. They're about to be conquered. They're surrounded by their enemies. They they have no hope of doing anything to rescue themselves. They have one hope that comes from outside themselves. It is a God who loves them and a God who has promised them a future and a God who is sending his son into the world that Christmas might change everything. And maybe you're here this morning and you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I need everything changed about my life. And you're even more honest than that with yourself. You're saying to yourself, I've tried to change everything in my life. And you know what? I ain't really doing it. It ain't getting done. Ain't because I don't have the want to. It's it's because I I don't have the how to. I don't know how. I don't have strength. There are longings for change that are beyond my ability. Beloved, if that's you, you're right where God wants you. You are nearer to your salvation and your change than you have ever been before. Because this is the mystery of Christmas. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of the cross. It doesn't require anything of us except that we confess our sins and turn away from our sins, and put all of our hope in Jesus, to be our Lord and our God, who took care of our sin problem on the cross when he died and was punished in our place, and took care of our righteousness problem in the resurrection, having obeyed God perfectly during his earthly life, and having been raised from the grave as a sign that God accepted him in our place. He is the one who both removes our sin and gives us righteousness and he is the one therefore if we trust in him we receive all that he is to us and all that he brings glory instead of gloom, light instead of darkness joy instead of defeat he brings to us peace instead of agony he brings to us freedom in his love that's what he offers to you not just because it's Christmas time, but that's what He offers the world every day. And to anyone who would repent of their sin, put their trust in Him and follow Him as their God and their Savior. The invitation this morning is to do just that. Confess your sin. Quit your sin. Trust in Jesus. Jesus. And receive the salvation and forgiveness and righteousness and peace that he came to bring. It's, it's yours. Unto us a son is given. Receive him and live. We're gonna have our potluck fellowship in just a moment. So if that's you this morning, we invite you to take your time, stick around, come with us to the potluck fellowship, eat a meal. Talk with me or Pastor Jahil or Mabuso who led us in the service or George who read the scripture or the Christian friend who brought you. If you've got questions about this or want to know more about this or you want to be certain that this son is yours, we'd like nothing more than to help you, to encourage you, to open the Bible more and to show you in the word how it is that you may have eternal life with God. Stick around. Before you do that, deal with God. I'm gonna lead us in prayer. We're gonna sing another song. We're gonna have a moment of silence. These next few minutes could change your eternity. Don't waste them. Don't let yourself get distracted by people who are packing up or shifting in their seats. Go to God. Pray to Him. Seek His salvation. Put your trust in Him. No one who trusts in God will be put to shame. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us a son, your son, your unique son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and prince of peace, the one on whose shoulders your divine government rests. And the one who establishes David's throne and justice and righteousness forevermore. And the one who rules even now at your right hand from heaven. The one who died for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And the one who rose for us from the grave, defeating death and the grave that we might live forever in him. This Jesus we praise you for. And this Jesus we celebrate. This Jesus we adore as our Lord and our King. This Jesus we obey in faith. This Jesus we wish to know even more. Grant a personal knowledge of Jesus to all those who are in the gloom and anguish of sin, who are in darkness and lost, can't find their way. Grant this, Jesus, to all of those, O Lord, who are defeated right now by their sin, oppressed by the enemy. Lord, liberate them. Give them peace with you and and peace inside and peace with men. And Lord, we pray, give them joy, increasing joy. May it flood their souls and remain there forevermore. Give them light in the face of Christ. They might see how to walk with him. Do your saving work this morning. We ask it in faith. We ask it, oh Lord, longing. We ask that you would do it according to your zeal. Save this morning. Make men and women, boys and girls new and encourage your saints this morning we pray as we wait on your second coming and the fullness of your kingdom. This we pray O Lord in Jesus name. Amen.